Our scripture reading today, it comes to us from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 12 to 25. Hear these words this morning. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers who at the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who also is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord God, we come to you with this passage of Scripture today. You know it very well. We pray, O oh God, that you would teach us from this passage today. Use your servant Ben to pray, to preach, and to praise you through this passage today. I pray, Father, that we would hear, we would listen, we would respond. We pray, O oh God, that it is through your Spirit today that we hear and can respond. We thank you, O oh Lord, that you speak to us and you give to us words of life, a message of hope, if we have faith in you. Give to us today even that faith through grace that you have given to us. And we pray all this now in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Greetings to you from your brothers and sisters at Grace Hill uh, Church. Again, we're a church plant. Uh, we meet close to um, 
I don't know, the Fulton Street Market, if you know where that is. Uh, that's kind of the area that we're planted in. If you're not familiar with me or the church plant, but greetings to you from your brothers and sisters there. At Grace Hill, what we're doing is going through a series on the Gospel of Mark. And if you were to read the first 10 chapters of Mark, you would see Jesus presented as several things. You'd see him presented as a teacher. You would see Jesus as a healer. You would see Jesus as one who performs many different miracles. But if we left it at chapter 10, our, our view of Jesus would be incomplete. There are other roles that he played and is playing and the plan of salvation uh, that we see beyond chapter 10. And our passage this morning is from chapter 11. And in chapter 11, we see him in the role of judge. Now, based on your background, that might be hitting your ears a little differently. Um, but it is imperative that we see Jesus in that role. Um, our scripture teaches, our confession articulates that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And we see this passage pointing to his, the, his role as judge. But what we'll also see in the passage is that judgment, when that day comes, is nothing to fear, but it's actually something that we can long for. That in Christ, judgment is something that we can actually long for. Now, to transition a little bit, um, I consider myself a pretty uh, easygoing guy, kind of chill, not too easily riled up at certain things, uh, but there are, I do have some triggers. I do have some things that can get my blood going a little bit. Uh, for example, instant grits. <laughs> I don't know if that was something you were expecting me to say in that moment, maybe not. Have no use for instant grits. Instant coffee, basically anything with the word instant in front of it, I have no use for. Something else that kind of gets me going a little bit, and I'm being a little personal here, but the word is pronounced Appalachian. <laughs> I don't know if you've been taught any sort of morbid derivation of that word, but it is Appalachian. Um, from that region, I'm speaking on good authority that it is pronounced Appalachian. <laughs> now that we've cleared that up, think about some of those that you have, though. Uh, those are kind of silly and funny, but, you know, you can kind of be going along your day, and then all of a sudden something happens, or you hear of something, and it sort of gets, gets you going, gets your blood pumping a little bit. And again, those are kind of silly examples I use, but there are, there, there are some serious versions of that, right? Um, when, when someone whom you love or you care about deeply is mistreated in some way that can awaken something in you. Uh, when you hear of the loss of innocent life, when you hear of injustices, it, it, it does something to you. And what we're seeing in our passage is a place, a holy place, a sacred place that's been um, misused, mistreated. And what we're seeing in our passage is this thing referred to as the zeal of the Lord on full display, something precious to him, abused, misused, and Jesus responds. 
Now, if you have uh, Scripture open uh, to chapter 11, uh, you'll see that the chapter actually begins with what is referred to as the triumphal entry. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem for his final week before his crucifixion. Our passage takes place the following day. So just setting the context, Jesus has entered into, into Jerusalem for his final week. The evening of that first day, he goes to the temple. And I don't know if you might recall this moment. He walks into the temple. The day is still. It's silent. People have gone home. He goes to the temple and looks around and then leaves is very uh, curious for Mark to write this way. He doesn't usually leave us in like a cliffhanger, but he's foreshadowing what will happen the following day, which is where our passage picks up at verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, and Bethany was a little town about two miles outside of Jerusalem. They were staying there, commuting into Jerusalem during the day, but staying in, in Bethany in the evening. And then we have what is arguably one of the most puzzling episodes in all the Gospels. Jesus is hungry. Presumably it's the morning. Maybe you're looking for some breakfast. He's walking back to Jerusalem. He sees a fig tree in the distance. He goes up to the fig tree to see if he can find anything to eat. He discovers only leaves and then says to the fig tree, may no one ever eat from you again. Kind of puzzling. Especially when you skip down to verse 20 and you see that that's, it's carried out. That's not just something that Jesus says. He actually curses the fig tree and it withers and the fig tree dies. Now, one reason that this is so or can be uh, challenging to us is the fact that this is the only what's called the miracle of destruction that Jesus uh, performs. It's recorded for us in the Gospels. Usually he's restoring life. Usually he's healing and yet here he is ending the life of this fig tree. It's kind of curious. Seems to be out of character for him. And some have, I think, jokingly said, well, this is just an example of Jesus being hangry. I don't know if you've ever experienced this before, but you're hungry. And then that quickly turns into anger. I get accused of that quite frequently, quite accurately, actually. Is this what's happening? Is Jesus simply hangry? Well, I think there's probably something more to that. Uh, than simply with that uh, description. But also look at what happens in verse 13. Look what Mark includes for us. Here's another reason why it's curious. Not only is this seemingly out of character for Jesus, but Mark also tells us that it's not the season for figs. Jesus goes up to a fig tree looking for something to eat, doesn't find any figs on it, and curses it. And Mark tells us, well, it's not the season for figs. What if... I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I want a bagel, and I go downtown to Tara, and I go up to the door to go get a bagel and find that it's closed. And then I grab a brick and throw it through the front window. Is that justified? 3 o'clock in the morning, Tara Bagels is not open. I want a bagel. What do you mean you're closed? And then I throw a brick through the window. Is that a parallel of what we're seeing happening here. It's not the season for figs, and yet Jesus then curses the fig tree. Now, I have spent so much time looking through and listening to different scholars and theologians and pastors, and it's been really interesting to hear them wrestle with this and try to come up with an explanation. And sounds, it's funny when I hear this like 
crusty old theologian sounding like a horticulturalist telling me about the fruit cycle of fig trees. But it is kind of interesting. Fig, a fig tree, and I will sort of commend this to you if you want to spend some time, there are some fascinating documentaries on fig trees. <laughs> Statement I never thought I would make. But they're really fascinating. And when you, find, when you start to understand the, the fruiting cycle of a fig tree, there are really three, three phases. So what I'm going to do is pass along to you uh, what all the experts are saying. And, and some people that I really trust, actually, this is the, this is the conclusion that they, they, they draw about what's happening here. A fig tree has three phases. It begins in the springtime with these little green nodules. The, the, the saying is that these are green figs. They're not tasty. They're not really what you think about when you think of a, a fig, but it's these little green pre-figs that happen in, in this early spring, followed by a time of leaf, and then later in the summer is when you get the actual figs. And so what people are concluding is that Jesus is not looking for the figs because he knows that that, he knows that, that happens later in the summer, but he's looking for those little green nodule, the green figs. Again, not tasty, but edible. He's hungry. He's going to find something to eat. He sees the fig tree, sees it in leaf, which is phase two, and so then he assumes that it will have those green nodules. He goes up, finds none. This is a sign then that this is a diseased tree. There's something that's not is not bearing the fruit as it ought. Something is wrong with it. It's not bearing the fruit, and therefore he curses it. Now, that's a fine ex explanation, and, and, and that's, that, you know, again, a lot of people I trust hold to that, and I think that's totally fine. Here's my, I don't know if you can sense this in my voice, but there's a little bit of a caution that I want to pass along to you as well, and that is, let us not be so quick when we are confronted by Scripture, when we're made to feel a little uncomfortable or uneasy by something that we read in Scripture, let's not be so quick to find some explanation. There's got to be some YouTube video that can explain why this is making me feel kind of icky inside. Because I think we need to be confronted by Scripture. We need to be contradicted by Scripture. It needs to challenge us. It needs to press into our lives a little bit. And it's dangerous when that stops happening, actually. So I think what we need to do is find that's a great explanation about the green figs and those nodules in springtime, and that that's what Jesus was looking for. Fine, but let's also accept the challenge from, that, from Scripture and rest, perhaps, in never fully knowing what was happening in that moment. And while we're resting in that tension, let's also cling to several things. Number one, Jesus never sinned. So whatever is happening in that moment, it's not sin. He's perfectly just, perfectly loving, perfectly holy, perfectly keeping the law. Uh, so whatever is happening in that moment is not a bad thing. If there's an issue with what's happening, it's not with him, it's with us. So that's the first thing to kind of cling to in this, in this sort of tension we're feeling about this passage. The second thing to cling to is that it doesn't have to do, as it doesn't have to deal with the fig tree at all. This passage is not about a fig tree. Yes. It's about something else. It's pointing to something else. And what is that something else? It's about the temple. It's about the people of God. It's about Israel. It's about the leaders of the temple. It's not the fig tree. How do we know this? Well, two reasons. 
Number one, Mark is doing this thing in the passage that he does several times throughout the gospel. And if you've ever studied Mark's gospel, or if you've ever been taught this before, he has this very uh, curious habit of creating a sandwich. One passage, he'll mention some illustration, and then several verses or a couple chapters down, he'll have another illustration that parallels the initial illustration. So two parallel illustrations, the bread on the top, the bread on the bottom, but the meat is what's in the middle. The lesson is what's in the middle. For example, chapter 8, there's this um, Jesus healing of a blind man. Chapter 10, Jesus heals a blind man. That's the bread, but in the middle is this lesson on discipleship and what it means to follow Jesus. In our passage, we see a mini sandwich. Beginning at verse 12, there's mention of a fig tree. Verse 20, mention of a fig tree. That's the bread. And in the middle, beginning at verse 15, is the meat. There's our sandwich. And yes, if you want to call it a fig Newton, that's fine. (laughs) Totally appropriate. I guess technically it would be an inverted fig Newton because the fig's on the outside. But then it'd be kind of messy, and then it's just like, and then the metaphor dissolves. So maybe we should just stick to the sandwich. It's not about the fig tree because we see the fig Newton presented to us here in this passage. Secondly, second reason we know it's not really about the fig tree is because throughout the Old Testament, And you can read this in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Joel, Micah, many prophets. Whenever they referred to fig trees, they were never talking about fig trees. They were always referring to Israel. And when the fig tree and the prophets bore fruit, that meant that Israel was walking with the Lord. They were obedient to him. They were not following the ways of the world. They were obedient, and they were reflecting his goodness to the world. And so when the prophets referred to Israel as a fig tree bearing fruit, that meant that they were in step with the Lord. But then other times, as recorded by the prophets, Israel did not bear fruit, meaning they were not walking with the Lord. They were disobedient and they were following the ways of the world and not their God. Whenever judgment is pronounced upon a fig tree in the Old Testament, it was to be understood upon, as judgment upon Israel itself. So again, Jesus approaching a fig tree, was he looking for the green nodules, what was going on? Let's not be too distracted by that, but let's focus in on the meat of the lesson, which is concerning the temple, concerning the people worshiping God. Now, just a couple comments about the temple um, it was, it is, it's difficult for me to overstate how important the temple was for first century Jews. I mean, it was the epicenter of, yes, obviously religious life, but also social life, even to an extent, political life. This is where the people of God met with God. This is where the sins of the people were paid for through sacrifice. This is also where the temple tax was paid. As an act of worship, the temple tax was paid in Jerusalem at the temple. The temple was massive, not just physically, but also, again, in these other ways in their lives as well. But the actual building, the, the, just to give you a, a picture, when you talk about the temple, I don't want you to just think of you know, First Baptist Church on the corner down the street. I mean, this was a massive 300 yards by 500 yards, simply the walls. 
the entire complex, if you were to take 35 football or soccer fields, choose whichever one you want, but 35 of them, lay them all next to each other, that's about the, 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 the square footage that we're talking about. This is a massive complex. 25 acres of it was just for the court of Gentiles alone. So again, you, th- you think about the size of this, and it was, yes, divided up by gender. It was divided up by race as well. The Jews were allowed to go further into the temple, but the Gentiles, which I would assume most, most of us would fall in that category, we'd be left in the, the court of the Gentiles. But nevertheless, we did have access to the temple. We could have gone in to worship God. And yet, something has happened to that space. And this is where we see the zeal of the Lord come through. The court of the Gentiles was to be a a place set aside for prayer, for worship. Jesus quoting Isaiah 56 in our passage is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. It was a sacred space, a place of reverence and humility and hushed tones. And yet, what had it become? The temple had become, in essence, the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, if you had ever seen videos of that. I mean, loud, bustling, buying and selling, money changing. A merchandise mall, as one person has described it. People would travel long distances to come to Jerusalem for the time of Passover, which is the time recorded for us here in Mark's Gospel. They did not bring their animals with them for the sacrifice, but just for sake of ease, they would just buy the animals once they got there, but they're using foreign currency, so they'd have to exchange their currency into the local currency to buy the pigeons, but also to then go and pay the temple tax. But there were unfair prices, thus the, thus, thus the comment, den of robbers. There, were, there was price gouging going on, thievery happening within the temple. Not only was all this commerce happening within the temple, preventing people from worshiping and praying, but also the temple had become a means of convenience. So not only did Jesus overturn the tables and drive people out, John tells us in John 2 that he actually used a whip to drive people out. Let's just stop for a second and and listen to this moment. Not just picture it, but listen to the moment. All the sounds happening in the temple, and here's Jesus overturning tables. Coins clattering on the floor. Driving people out with a whip. Right after we hear of him cursing this fig tree. I mean, this really is a fascinating passage, and one I commend to you to spend more time on on your own. People were using, if you look at verse 16, he says he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. What that is, is the temple was right in the center of the city, and it was, again, it's a massive um, area, and people would simply use the temple as a cut-through on their way from one place to another. They would just take their goods when they're trying to get to Meyer or something. They would just simply pass through the temple on their way to the other side. They were using it as a con- place of convenience, I don't know if y'all have ever been at a red light before and you're, st- you're, you're stuck at the red light, but you're also at an at a intersection with gas stations or other businesses on the corners. And I don't know if you've ever seen someone pass through the parking lot of a gas station. They didn't want to wait for the red light, so they would just kind of pass through on the way to wherever they were going. I'm not going to ask for y'all to raise your hands if you've ever done that before. I know you've thought about doing it. 
Did that person, as they're cutting through the, the, the gas station on their way, did that have anything, did they pay, pay any attention to the place that they were cutting through? No, it was simply for themselves and their own convenience they're passing through. And that's something that we see happening in our passage. People thinking nothing at all about the temple and where they were and whose presence they were uh, in front of. They would simply just pass through for their own convenience. So Jesus, what he is doing is pronouncing judgment I also want to be clear about this. He's not pronouncing judgment because of the buying and the selling. He's not pronouncing judgment because of the exchanging of the money. That's an that's a, that's a understanding that I had for a long time, that he's mad that people were having to buy pigeons. That's not it. That's actually according to the law, which he came to fulfill. He's angered about the location that this was taking place. For about two miles from, the, from Bethany, from Mount Olives to Jerusalem, was basically just a a series of markets. And Caiaphas, the high priest, a couple of years before this episode happened, decided to create a competing market <laughs> to all those on the Mount of Olives. And he said, you know what, let's just go ahead and put it within the temple itself. It's not so much that it was happening, it was where it was happening. And so Jesus pronounces judgment here. And if you're looking at your Bible, uh, you know, we have these sometimes helpful subheadings. Uh, these are not inspired, uh, the, nor are the, uh, the verse numbers. The joke is whoever was putting those in was riding on the back of a horse while he was doing it because he's bouncing around, putting all the, the numbers in where the verse numbers are. But if you look in the Bible, it says Jesus cleanses the temple. I want us to maybe reconsider that a little bit. When you cleanse something, you're cleaning it out to reuse it. Right? You find an old water bottle or old coffee mug, you find you want to cleanse it so you can reuse it. Is Jesus cleansing the temple that it may be reused? I don't think so. I think we need to challenge that, reassess that thinking a little bit. Because what we also see here is, is a judgment, a curse, but Jesus is also prophetically saying what will happen to the temple just a couple decades later. In AD 70, the temple is completely destroyed by the Romans, plus... Through his sacrifice, through the work of the Spirit, Jesus is also, in this moment, redefining the temple. He is the new temple. And united with him by the Spirit, we too are living stones being built up as this new temple. It completely changes our way of seeing and, and, and approaching this idea of temple and the presence of God. It's no longer a place, but by the Spirit and with Christ as their head, the temple is us. So let's go back to this question, why did Jesus judge what was taking place in the temple? Let's again think back to the sandwich. Why was there judgment on the temple? Same reason there was judgment on the fig tree, there's no fruit. The same imagery used throughout the Old Testament is applicable here. Israel and those in charge of leading the people and the worship of God were all leaf, but no fruit. They're putting on a good show at the temple. There's a lot of bustling about. There's a lot of work being done within the temple. They were beautiful leaves, but there was no fruit. There were no marks of those who are worshiping God in humility, in obedience, and so again, it's not about the fig tree. It's about the people of God growing in their likeness of him, bearing the fruit of holiness and righteousness in their lives, and not simply looking healthy. 
looking like a healthy, leafy fig tree, but it's really about being healthy. So let's begin to now try to apply this passage. I don't know if you all have any fig trees at the house. You might be thinking, well, how in the world is this going to apply to me? I'm not even a horticulturalist, for crying out loud. Well, let's think about this. Um, when we think about the time that has, has passed since this event took place and right now this morning, some things have changed and other things have stayed the same. So when we apply this passage and think about how it speaks to us today, some things have changed, some things have not. So let's begin with that one. What, what has stayed the same? Since this passage, since this event took place, what has stayed the same? Well, Jesus is still judge. That's still his role, and it will continue to be until we stand before him. Secondly, the metaphor of the fig tree still applies. So Jesus is still judge, and the metaphor of the fig tree still applies to you and I. Because we are, biblically speaking, to be seen as a fig tree. Individually, but also the church. So the question is, are you and I bearing fruit? He desires for us to bear fruit. And so let's spend just a couple moments asking ourselves, are we bearing fruit? Individually, but then also Christ Church, are you bearing fruit? Or do you only look healthy? Are you only leaves? Again, the fig tree looked healthy from the outside. I think a lot of Christians, we have this tendency to make sure that we look healthy leafy on the outside we do these things we don't do those things we say this we don't say that we go here we go oh, go, go there and so there's this very performance-based thing and how easily we can slide into that and sure there is some wisdom to be applied here and things we say in places we you know all that of course but if it stops there then we're in trouble are we only playing the part are we only giving the appearance of being a good Christian or a good, healthy church, or are we actually bearing fruit? So let's talk about that a little bit also. You might be saying, okay, well, what fruit? If I'm supposed to bear fruit, what fruit am I supposed to be bearing? And of course, a lot of places in Scripture we could go. Fruit of the Spirit, Ephesians 5, um, Galatians 5. Galatians 5? Galatians 5. Ephesians 5 would be a good place too. But what I want to do is actually stay in the, in the passage a little bit because Jesus actually mentions three fruits or characteristics of the fruit uh, in our passage. And they're these. Faith, prayer, and mercy. So when we think about ourselves and begin to apply this passage to our own lives individually but also corporately, let's think of these, th these three things, faith, prayer, and mercy. Look with me, beginning at verse uh, 22. Peter had just exclaimed, look, the, the fig tree has withered, which is another Old Testament uh, echo. But verse 22, Jesus answered them, have faith in God, full stop. Have faith in God. You want to talk about fruit? Let's begin there. Have faith in God, not faith in self and your works, not faith in anyone else or any idea or anything else, but have faith strictly in God. 
Verse 23, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and doesn't doubt in his heart but believes what he says will come to pass, it'll be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it'll be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Three things, faith, prayer, and mercy or forgiveness. Jesus is making some incredible claims in this passage. It's important for us to understand the point and not be distracted by the idea of going and throwing mountains into seas. The emphasis on what he can do, not what we can do. What seems impossible for us is certainly possible for him. And so we need to focus really on these three things. Have faith in God, pray to him, and extend mercy and forgiveness to others just as you have been Forgiven. Now, a couple minutes ago I said that some things have changed and some things haven't. What hasn't changed is that Jesus is still judge and he is still desiring his people to bear fruit. That has not changed. But what has changed is the dwelling place of God. God no longer dwells in a stone structure as he once did, but he now dwells in you. A couple weeks ago we celebrated Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon his people dwelling within us. The fruit of faith, prayer, and mercy is no longer animated by the activities in the temple in Jerusalem. It's no longer something that you and I do to empower and animate, but it's done so by what Christ has done. It's the fruit of his faith, his prayer, his forgiveness that pleased the Father. And so when we are united to Christ by the Spirit, God sees not your imperfect faith. He sees not your imperfect prayer. He sees not your imperfect mercy. But instead, he sees Jesus' perfect faith, prayer, and mercy. But here's the thing. In order for the Spirit to enter in and apply to us all that Jesus did for us, there did have to be a cleansing, and this is where that word is appropriately used. There had to be a cleansing within us, and that cleansing came at a cost, a sacrifice. And here's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus, who pronounced a curse upon a tree, was cursed upon a tree for you and I, for your lack of fruit and for my lack of fruit. He lived his life in perfect obedience to the will of his Father and yet died for your and my disobedience. He was denied mercy so that me, we may receive mercy. He stands as judge because he was once judged for you and for me. And so to close, we live our lives of faith, prayer, and mercy not so that we can receive acceptance by God the Father, but because we already have. We're already accepted by what Christ has done. We are merely responding in gratefulness and in thankfulness and in humility to what Jesus has done. And as we respond, we then participate and the good work that the Spirit is doing in our lives, producing this fruit. We're not robots. We're not 
we passively receive, but then we actively engage and participate in the growth of our likeness of our Savior, producing the fruit of godliness. So my charge to all of us is to rest in the finished work of Christ. And as we rest, may we bear fruit, not just pretty leaves, but fruit of faith, of prayer and mercy to the glory of our Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word as it challenges us, as it contradicts us, as it convicts us. But in that, draw us deeper into fellowship with you. Use your word to, to search out those dark corners within our hearts and by your gentleness and kindness lead us to repentance, which is another fruit. To repent of uh, faith in self, faith in other, faith in our own works. Help us to repent of that and seek truly faith only in you, prayer and mercy just as we have received mercy. We pray this in your name. Amen.